Hello, and welcome to the Salisbury Pediatric Associate Health and Wellness Newsletter Audiocast. I am your host, Dr. M. This is Volume 12, Issue Number 40, which corresponds with the week of September 19, 2022. This week, we're going to be looking at the work of Dr. Katz, an upcoming interviewee related to the issues of childhood obesity, as well as some research related to multivitamins and multiminerals and the risk of dementia. We'll also cover some topics related to marijuana and vaping. And finally, some new work by Derek Sivers. The free thoughts this week, being euthermic or you anything chronically is not good for our physiology. Change your state constantly. Be hot, cold, run, walk, sprint, eat, fast. Everything else in that polar opposite range tends to be good for the system. Always being at 70 degrees, always eating the same thing, always sitting in the same position, not good for physiology. Song of the week is Come Sail Away by Sticks. Okay, let's get started. Issue number 40, Dr. Katz. So he wrote, human offspring come into this world much like the young of all other mammals. And like all others, within minutes of our arrival, we are hungry. Food figures prominently in our lives ever after. But never is it more important than in childhood when it serves as the literal construction material of those growing bodies and brains. The initial food choice for human babies should be self-evident, as it is for all other baby mammals, the milk of their mothers. The provision of that milk is among the defining characteristics of the mammalian class. It is part of what makes us what we are. Of course, though, another thing that makes us homo sapiens, what we are is these large brains of ours, which are, of course, capable of great achievement, but unfortunately great mischief as well. One variety of that mischief is complicating the simple, and over a span of decades we have certainly done that with regard to breastfeeding, which has gone in and out of fashion. Fortunately, it is now very much back in fashion, and one hopes here to stay. There are, of course, contradictions to breastfeeding, but these are idiosyncratic. Overwhelming the literature attests vigorously and consistently to the wide array of benefits of breastfeeding. Mother's milk is the right first food for baby mammals almost all of the time, and baby humans are no exception. If complications of mischief have encumbered the simple choice of breast milk, they have done far worse to more challenging options that follow. What should human children eat? If we once again initiate our answer by considering our place in nature, that answer would seem to be what their parents eat. Children should learn to eat the food that will sustain them throughout their lives. He also goes on to write in this article, which I'll give you the link to in the newsletter, He writes, most mammals seem to take the basic care and feeding of their offspring very seriously. Most mammals seem to recognize childhood as the time to cultivate the dietary aptitudes and attitudes that will shape a lifetime of sustenance. Our own species, or at least its currently prevailing culture, seems inclined to treat the feeding of our children as something of a joke. We seem inclined to confront the prominence of junk food in the diets of our children with a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, as if it were at worst cute at best, a legitimate food group in its own right. It is neither. What we feed our children initiates and propagates a lifetime of taste preferences. 
What we feed our children cultivates lifelong perceptions and expectations. What we feed our children influences energy balance that, in turn, shapes the trajectory of weight across lifespan. What we feed our children propels them away from or toward the risk of debilitating chronic disease. What we feed our children exerts a profound influence on their medical destinies. What we feed our children, and only that, is the construction material for those fast-growing little bodies we profess to love. What we feed our children matters profoundly. If our culture is inclined to think otherwise, we are most egregiously kidding ourselves. That comes from his piece written in Liebert Pub that I have links to in the newsletter. It's an excellent piece. I just gave you snippets of it. I could not agree more with what he said. He is spot on in this article about the problems that faces our children and at the hands of the adults that purport to care for them. A nightmare of epic proportions. Where is the parental outrage at the system in place? Since the systems in power are doing the opposite of what is necessary for our children's health, it is up to us to start this process at the ground level with our children in our homes. Pack nourishing lunches from home in place of the highly processed children's breakfast and lunches at the public school system. We have to lead by example. We as parents must eat well and provide a table sitting of the minimally or better yet not processed food for them as well. We give thanks for food that nourishes our, our mind and our body. We start small and aim for greater health regardless of the system that does not value us or our children. The interview with Dr. Katz is coming up in a couple of weeks. And it is an amazing conversation because he is an incredibly amazing orator and teacher. We're going to touch on some really tricky topics related to childhood weight gain and the system at large. For me, we need to stop normalizing ultra-processed foods as healthy. They are not and never will be. There's a push in some parts of this country to liberalize junk food in an effort to prevent food shaming. This is akin to allowing your child to smoke marijuana or crack and not saying anything for fear of shaming that behavior. I am sorry. This is also the same as letting them hurt themselves purposely. I took a Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Therefore, to say nothing is to do harm. Eating processed food on a consistent basis is akin to death by a thousand small cuts. This is not okay in any setting. The line must be drawn. Let's also look at, in the next section, a recent journal article published in the journal Alzheimer's and Dementia. We see a data set shedding more light on the work discussed in podcast number 26 with Dr. Bonnie Kaplan, The Better Brain. In this case, the micronutrient supplements are used to treat cognitive decline in this article. From the paper, they state, a total of 2,262 participants were enrolled and 92% completed the baseline at at least one annual assessment. Cocoa extract had no effect on global cognition. Daily multivitamin and multimineral supplementation, though, relative placebo, resulted in statistically significant benefit on global cognition. And this effect was most profound in participants with a history of cardiovascular disease. Multivitamin, multimineral supplement benefits were also observed for memory and executive function. The cocoa extract in this study by the multivitamin-multimineral group interaction was not significant for any of the cognitive composites. 
So for me, these cofactors are very involved in many neurologic pathways, as Dr. Kaplan discussed. When we were talking about just mental health from the mood disorder side or even the ADHD side. In modern America and many developed nations, diets have become cofactor depleted, leading to plausible mechanistic pathways for these effects to be observed in the brain. It is really pleasing to see these results as they make sense and the treatment has zero risk. This is unlike every pharmaceutical grade medicine that we use where risk does exist and is inherent and treatment benefits are very weak for the dementia side to date. Billions of dollars have been put into dementia therapy, especially with Alzheimer's, with zero to show for it. So for me, putting somebody on a multi-mineral, multivitamin supplement early in their 50s, 40s with a potential risk of Alzheimer's makes complete sense. The article was written by Baker, and again, it's in Alzheimer's and Dementia this year. Section 2. Drug use is on the rise according to a new federal study from the National Institutes of Health. Marijuana use in the past year, past month, and daily marijuana use reached the highest levels ever recorded since these trends were first monitored in 1988. The proportion of young adults who reported past year marijuana use reached 43% in 2021, a significant increase from 34% five years ago in 2016, and 29% 10 years ago in 2011. Marijuana use in the past month was reported by 29% of young adults in 2021 compared to 21% in 2016 and 17% in 2011. Daily marijuana use also significantly increased during these time periods reported by 11% of young adults in 2021 compared to 8% in 2016 and 6% in 2011. Vaping or nicotine vaping in the past month increased significantly among young adults in 2021 despite leveling off in 2020 during the earlier part of the pandemic. The continued increase in 2020 reflects a general long-term upward trend in nicotine use. In 2021, nicotine vaping preference nearly tripled to 16% compared to 6% in 2017 when the behavior was first recorded. Prevalence of marijuana vaping in the past month among young adults had significantly dipped to 2020, in 2020, but returned to near pre-pandemic levels in 2021 and seems to be rising again now. Since 2017, when marijuana vaping was included in this study, past month prevalence has doubled from, from 6% in 2017 to 12% in 2021. This comes to us from NIH news release data. Knowing the statistical reality is marijuana safe for use in teens since Clearly, the use is occurring and at higher volumes. The American sentiment continues to shift to an it-is-safe feeling, especially out in the Wild West. When it comes to drugs that affect the brain, we have to be very careful to conclude this on a population level. What happens in adults is vastly different than what happens in teens and the growing brain. The age of user matters a lot. Consider the vaping debacle of the last few years when pondering safety. Easy access can explode use and therefore increase the risk of subset of teens that have negative outcomes. At one time during adolescence, 10 to 20% of teenagers will suffer a mood disorder like anxiety or depression that is often self-medicated with drugs. College students have to leave school every year secondary to psychological breaks that are induced by drug use, including marijuana. I witnessed this firsthand as I went to a very small school and things of this nature were hard to hide. For me, the biggest concern with recreational drug use has always been the long-term effects on the young mind. In the December 27 edition, 2017 edition of Scientific American, there was an article entitled Marijuana in the Teen Brain. It is a good read, and I encourage you to reread it if you haven't read it. 
As author Claudia Wallace points out, parents have been warning teens away from drugs for centuries only to for teens to hide in the woods and smoke before school and smile. And yes, I do remember these high school students, we called them burnouts, who hid in the woods smoking daily behind school. Studies have shown that marijuana users have worsened attention, memory, and learning. We know that some users can become delusional and even have psychotic breaks. What we do not know is who will and who won't. Some college students appear to be able to smoke often and remain fully functional as they are able to graduate and hold gainful employment. Whether they suffered weakened attention and memory would only be known pre- and post-assessment. In states that have legalized marijuana use, there has been a 0.5% increase in high school dropout and a 2% decrease in college enrollment. That is a lot of children when you look at the number of states that have legalized marijuana and the volume of students overall. And that volume, especially in young men who are not going through high school and not getting college degrees, are more likely to end up in trouble with the law or doing heavy drugs as they age. This is not good for society. Evidence seems to point to safety for use in adults where the brain is not growing and changing. In a meta-analysis from 2012, authors noted that after 25 days off the drug, the users had no difference in cognition versus the non-users. That comes to us from Schreiner, S-C-H-R-E-I-N-E-R, et al. in 2012. But this is not the same for teen brains. Quote, for one thing, recent studies show that cannabinoids manufactured by our nerve cells play a crucial role in wiring the brain, both prenatal and during adolescence. Throughout life, they regulate appetite, sleep, emotion, memory, and movement, which makes sense when you consider the effects of marijuana. There are huge changes in the concentration of these endocannabinoids during the teenage years, according to neurologist Yasmin Hurd of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, which is why she and others who study this system worry about the impact casually dosing it with weed. While well, that comes from that article from Scientific American by Claudia Wallace. End quote. The body actually makes similar substances naturally all the time. There are receptors in the brain for this family of chemicals making it a concern for us if teenagers are saturating these receptors beyond what would normally happen in nature. Some other disturbing findings are noted in the brain scans of users versus non-users. Users have smaller amygdala and hippocampal volumes, which means weakened emotional regulation and memory function. They also have reinforced this concern in animal studies that have shown that rats exposed to high-dose marijuana during puberty suffer cognitive decline that was not present during adulthood. In the American Journal of Psychiatry, the authors looked at the effects of alcohol and marijuana in teenagers. They filed 3,826 seventh-grade students in Montreal, Canada until they completed a 11th grade. Neurocognitive testing was performed and analyzed using big data approach. The results were surprising that the alcohol ingestion was less toxic to the brain than the marijuana. Only the marijuana users had adverse effects in all cognitive domains, especially working memory. Read the article for the full understanding of these profound results. The author of the article is Conrad, C-O-N-R-O-D. So what is clear to me when thinking of the brain and the development in humans is that certain people are predisposed to poor outcomes when exposed to an abnormal negative external stimulus like marijuana. Think of concussions here. Some people receive the same type of hit and one suffers a significant concussion where another does not. 
we know from epigenetic studies that mammals have different responses to external stressors, and I assume that this is the same with drugs of recreation like marijuana. This seems to be the case by my observational experience. Many young adolescents use drugs like marijuana to numb a psychological pain or current stressor. Is that persistent experiential negativity at the root of cognitive decline as well? I, hypop I hypothesize that this is also correct. Couple stress, epigenetics, and drug effects together, and I think that we can safely say that using these drugs during puberty is not in one's best interests. Mitigating the stresses of adolescence is where we should focus our efforts. Provide a true support system for teens before they feel the need to partake in the drug of this nature. I highly recommend that all teenagers read a few books. Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink. Inch and Miles by John Wooden. Anything You Want by Derek Sivers. Jonathan Livingston Seagull by Richard Bach. And The Daily Stoic by Ryan Holiday. If the teenagers really bold, have them read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Highly encourage meditation for young people. It's a great place to start for stress reduction. Look at apps like Mindfulness for Teens, Headspace, or Calm. I love the idea of daily prayer and gratitude journals as being highly beneficial to help take stress out of life so you don't turn to things like marijuana to deal with whatever you're bugged by. Consider taking your teen to a counselor for life coaching and stress reduction if they're struggling. Consider mission trips and local charity work to keep them and everything they have in their lives in perspective. But as always, stay in their lives and keep parenting them as long as you can. Okay, section three. Derek Sivers has a new book out, one of my favorite authors. It's called Your Music and People. He has a passage called This is a Test, This is Only a Test, in reference to the National Radio Test System for everyone to be aware if someone or something important for information purposes needs to be mass distributed to the country. What he is referring to is the reality that when you are testing something, the outcome is less important at the time than the experiment. When I am testing to see whether fasting makes me feel better, I am not wedded to the outcome. I am curious to the process and the results, but not wedded to the outcome. If we spend our lives testing everything, we would learn so much more. For example, I have been cold plunging for years, and each experience was a data point in the scatter plot. Recently, I upped the time and frequency to see what my system and mental state could handle. The outcome is less relevant than the process. If I could handle more, good. If not, good. It turns out that I have no problem sitting in 42 degrees Fahrenheit water temperature for eight minutes. Pretty cool outcome. But the process is more interesting. To look at this process as a pass-fail is a waste of time. And it's a waste of learning that goes along with any test. It is only a test. Explore the world as if everything is a test. Failure is not the issue. Learning is. And that's it for this week, folks. I hope you had a great day. I hope you have a great day. I hope tomorrow is a great day. And as always, hug those kids. Now for the disclaimer. The information provided in this newsletter is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. 
and it does not constitute the formation of a provider-patient relationship.